0: This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at GBCPH. Well, as we look at 2 Timothy here, I want to give a little bit of a review of where we've been. In chapter 1, what did we see? Well, we saw that God's Word is a great treasure. That's worth living for, laboring for, fighting for, and even suffering for. In chapter 2, we found that the ministry of the word is something that is going to require perseverance. We need to be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus if we're going to entrust this treasure of God's word to the next generation. It's going to take the constant mission focused loyalty of a soldier, it's going to take the discipline of an athlete, it's going to take the constant hard work of a farmer now shortly after this Paul commands Timothy to avoid the empty chatter of false teachers and he mentions two men Hymeneus and Philetus who had upset the faith of some in chapter 2 verse 16 and 17 now why does he bring these men up well Paul is showing that treasuring the word is going to require more than just enduring the work of gospel ministry but it's also going to mean guarding and protecting God's word from opponents who will come to deny its sufficiency. And this is why Paul wrote in chapter 1, verse 14, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. There must be protection, Timothy. And this is what he spends chapter 3 revealing to us. Well, you know, doubting the sufficiency of God's word can happen to the best of us. I remember sitting in my living room with a dear brother I was counseling. He had been going through some very difficult things, difficult trials in his life. Uh, He had seen others around him falling away. He had been steeped in depression and and dealing with various things. And I was doing my best to, to encourage this man. And I went to the scriptures, I went to Ephesians chapter 1. I started to enumerate all the riches of God's grace that had been given to him. I turned to him, Ephesians chapter 2, and showed him how he was once dead, but then God made him alive and delivered him. I turned to Romans 8 and showed him how there is now no condemnation for him who believes that the love of Christ is ever with him, no matter through Death or life or anything. Nothing can separate him from the love of Christ. And then I said, brother, is this helping you? And then he replied, no, not at all. And my heart just sunk. My heart sunk. You know why? Because I knew there was nothing else I could give him. There was nothing else in that moment I could give him. There's nothing else I had to give in that moment he had given into that lie that Christ's power was not sufficient to help him through the word whether it was a reaction to his circumstances or doubts that crept in from other teaching or influence his unbelief in that moment was absolutely devastating to me and to him and what i came to realize is that he had been taken captive by his doubt and the problem wasn't that Christ's word wasn't sufficient and the problem wasn't that Christ wasn't sufficient. It was that he was unwilling to believe and apply for himself that this was true. And this can happen to any of us. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to a place where like, I don't know if Christ can help me. I don't know if his word can help me. Well, this is what Paul's dealing with in chapter 3 of 2 Timothy He calls Timothy and us to guard and protect the word from the opposition to its sufficiency. It is sufficient. So, the title for this message is Fight the Good Fight of Faith by Protecting the Word. And God gives us three things we must do to protect the word from opponents. First, beware the character of opponents, second, resist the unbelief of opponents. And third, avoid the deception of opponents. Let's look at this first. Beware the character of opponents. We see this in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3. It says this, But realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Wow, what an indictment. He says here it's the in these last days. Now when he says that, he's not talking necessarily about the future, but actually right there and at that moment as he's writing to Timothy. He's speaking of this time that's between Jesus' first and second coming We are in the last days, Timothy. It's now. And he says, difficult times will come. From the context, Paul is saying that the difficult times are actually now. Since these opponents like Hymenaeus and Philetus, they've already infiltrated the church. The tough times are now. But what he means is that difficult times are now and that they are going to grow more difficult as Christ's return becomes more imminent Now notice the reason why there are difficult times. It's not because of living conditions. It's not because of political situation or any particular circumstances, but it's difficult because the evil character of the people of this age, that's what makes it difficult. The people of this evil age are characterized first by what they love. I am going to... uh, Group these attributes together a little bit. They're known by what they love. Look at what they love in verse 2. It says, They will be lovers of self. They will love themselves, idolatrize themselves. And it's described in some adjectives there as well in verse 2. They're boastful, they're being braggarts. This deals with their behavior. They laud themselves in their deeds, in their speech, they let it be known. How great they are. They're arrogant. It's the word to appear over, to shine over. And it deals with the feelings they have towards others. They see themselves as above. They're known by arrogance. They are conceited in verse 4. Literally that means from smoke. It's to be ones who are puffed up. And it deals with their self-image. How they view themselves. They see themselves great, but really it's just vapor. Just smoke. So they're known for what they love. They love themselves. They're also lovers of money in verse 2. Literally, they're lovers of silver. They love riches. They love material. Verse 4, they're lovers of pleasure. It's the word phileohedone where you hear that word hedonism, right? Hedonism, it says that the highest good is pleasure. They live for their pleasures rather than being lovers of God. They're characterized by what they love. But they're also characterized by what they lack. There's a number of description here that begin with The Greek letter alpha, which just means a negation. They're without something. Look at the things that they're without in verse 2. Disobedient to parents. They're without being persuaded or convinced by the wisdom of their parents. This is applicable for Father's Day, right? They're without that. They're not convinced by the wisdom of their parents. They don't listen to them, trust them. They're ungrateful. They're without kindness. They're without grace. They're without thanks. They're unholy. They're without regard to God's holiness. They're they're without regard to His holy standard that belongs to His people. They are unloving. That means they're without feeling. They're hard-hearted people. Hardened. They're irreconcilable that, that's an interesting word because it means without a drink offering, without an appeasement. They, they live without seeking truth with another. If you were to put your hand out to make peace with them, they would slap it away. They're irreconcilable. There are ones that are without self-control, meaning they're without the strength to resist their own passions. They are slaves of their own passions and lusts. They're brutal. They're without mildness. They're without temperance. They are untamed. They are wild. And they are haters of good. They are without that love of that which is good. See, they're known by what they love. They're known by what they lack. And they're characterized by how they speak. Look at verse 2. they are described as revilers. This is a blasphemer. They are ones who slander God and other people. They are malicious gossips in verse 3. That's the word diabolos. You hear the word diabolical. They're Satan-like. They're the ones who falsely accuse others. And they're characterized by what they run toward. They are treacherous in verse 4 they run toward giving away or giving over other people as in they give other people over for betrayal that's what they run toward they are malicious, they are reckless they run toward a fall they live in such a way that runs headlong to a fall to foolish ruin wow this is the character in this evil age what a description How horrible. And this is the character that makes these last days so difficult. Because people are this way, it makes it difficult for God's people, Christ's church, to live out her mission. To do what she is supposed to do. And notice that these people are not only outside of the church, but in this context, Paul is speaking about such people arising from inside the church, like Hymenaeus and Philetus. The sober reality is that the attitude and character of this evil age has infiltrated the church, and so we must be on guard against it. So the natural first point of application is self-examination, isn't it? As you read this list, does it not cause you to look inward and say, look at myself honestly? Do I see any of this evil character in me? First John 2.15 says, Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now we understand that we... Shouldn't covet the things in the world like its riches, its goods, its pleasures, because these are things that are going to fade away. They're temporary. We understand that. But more importantly, it means that we don't adopt the desires and character of the world. Because he says later that it says, For all that's in the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. It's not from the Father, but it's from the world. See, we're not to adopt the world's lust, not give ourselves over to the world's boastful pridefulness. God calls us to reject the desires and character of the world. So, dear saint, what has your heart this morning? Is it your desire to be right, to be superior, to be better, to be smarter, to be stronger? to be more honored, to be respected? Is it your desire for money, goods, riches? Does that have your heart? Is it your desire for pleasure from the world's fleeting amusements, from its leisures, from its comforts? Does that have your heart? Dear Saint, what does your speech say about what's in your heart because the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man what does your speech reveal about what's in your heart what you really believe what you really desire what do your deeds say about what's in your heart because do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience you are slaves of the one whom you obey So what your deeds say about you, who you're serving. Who are you serving in your deeds? What's it preaching? How about this? What does your schedule and your checkbook say about your heart? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You see, your schedule and your checkbook reveal your treasures. It shows what you invest all your resources into. And that's where your treasures are and where your treasure is, your heart is. What are those things preaching about your heart? Do I look anything like this list? Am I treasuring the world or am I treasuring Christ, His Word, His people, and His mission? Oh, by God's grace, may we not be characterized by that same evil character of the world. And if we've fallen into that temptation, praise God, the Lord grants repentance. May we turn. May we look nothing like that list. May we put it all off because Christ is more precious. But how do you protect the word word from opponents who are like this? How do you protect the word from the opponents who are like this? Well, turn back to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And read with me verse 22 to 26. It says, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call upon the Lord from a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will." Oh, here's clear instruction how do we deal with these opponents first we must live in contrast to them by living holy that's what we need to do notice the kind of character that Paul commands Timothy to have it's a character that flees lust pursues faith pursues love peace a character that's not quarrelsome but kind able to teach patient and Paul affirms that Timothy is living this way if you turn to chapter 3 Look at verse 10. He says this. Now you followed my teaching, my conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and suffering brings. Brings. Timothy had been living. We've been living this character out. The character of Timothy is exactly opposite of the character described of this evil age. So what's God saying? He's telling us that one primary means he uses to protect the word from opponents is through your holy living. Is through your life. The holy living of his people. You know, one such example of holy living that made an impact against his evil age was R.C. Chapman. Chapman was a pastor, a teacher, an evangelist in England in the 1800s. Spurgeon, the prince of... Preachers said this, he was quoted to say about Chapman that he was the saintliest man I ever knew. Many referred to Chapman as an apostle of love. The book Agape Leadership described Chapman this way, it says, He became legendary in his own time for his gracious ways, his patience, his kindness, his balanced judgment, his ability to reconcile people in conflict his absolute fidelity to scripture, and his loving pastoral care. Harrington Evans, a well-known and respected preacher of the day, described his impressions of Chapman in a letter to a friend. He writes this, Our Chapman has just left us. He slept here last night after preaching for me at John Street. Oh, what a man of God is he. What grace does he exhibit? Courage, meekness, self denial, tenderness, perseverance, love for souls, all springing out of love of Christ and God. They seem beauteously blended together in beautiful symmetry. Oh, that's the way God has called us. How will we fight against these opponents with this kind of character? Live holy. Dear saints like Paul, like Timothy, like R.C. Chapman, may we protect the word from opponents by continuing to live out our faith in Christ with holy, Christ-like character. And we can only do it as we saw last week. How? Strengthen in the grace that's in Christ. We also see how we need to correct those opponents with gentleness in verse 25 and 26 of 2 Timothy 2. He says with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. The word for correcting here is one translated also for training up. It's not the normal one that you would think for correction. The idea here is that we should attempt to, be, to mercifully teach, to instruct where they've gone wrong in God's word. What's our immediate reaction? Slam them, crush them. Now, do they need confrontation and sometimes very clearly and strongly? Yes. But look how he describes how we're supposed to do it with gentleness. And I think what that means is with graciousness with grace, understanding the grace of God as we do it. And he says, this is the way we should look at them. We want them to come to their senses to escape the snare of the devil. They've been made captive to him. There should be compassion that flows out of our heart to the ones that are characterized this way. So we do it with gentleness and compassion. That's what we must do. That's how we fight against those who oppose. So beware the character of opponents. Beware their character. Secondly, resist the unbelief of opponents. Resist the unbelief. Verse 5, back in chapter 3, verse 5. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. Here we come to the climax of their character their evil character inevitably bears the rotted fruit of unbelief these people have compromised the view of the power of Christ working through the word that's what he's saying here because they hold to a form of godliness it means it, they hold to an outward form of an inward reality these people have claimed to have true, abiding trust in Christ, resulting in a spirit-wrought godliness, but in fact, they didn't have that. It wasn't theirs. They didn't own that. Instead, they have denied its power. They've put on a show because they believe in the... They, 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 they put on a show, they believe the power of Christ through the word, but in their heart, they've denied that it really has the capability to produce true godliness. For them, Christ working through the word really doesn't have the power to change. It doesn't have the power to heal. It doesn't have the power to deliver people. One commentator says this, these men go through all the correct movements and maintain all the external forms of religion, but they know nothing of the dynamic power of the Spirit-filled, supernaturally energized Christ life, which transforms sinners into saints. That's what this means. They only hold to a form of godliness, but denied its power. Another commentator says this, they will ask the right questions but will follow the wrong answers. It will be religion for religion's sake, not religion for the sake of knowing Christ. They will join the church or some other religious organization. They will be baptized, attend the services, sing and pray and give and go through the motions, but their hearts will not be in it. They will deny the very power they profess to believe. In particular, they will embrace a kind of postmodern religion that allows them to do anything, believe anything, endorse anything, live any way they choose as long as it makes them happy. They will say things like, we don't need to be bound by the outdated rules of the Bible. Those were written 2,000 years ago, and they don't apply to us today. Wow. Does that not look like popular American Christianity today? Are these words not true of what these last days look like? Is that not is this not what's happening as we look at it? They don't believe in the sufficiency of Christ working through his word. And dear Christian, that is ultimately unbelief. That's what that is. Now this is serious. This is the difference between a genuine and a fake Christian. And opponents like these are rising from within the church. They're believing this. The issue is this. Can Christ do what he says he does? That's what's at stake. Can he do it or can't he? Is he sufficient for my every need or isn't he? And these opponents with their fake spirituality says no. No actually he can't now again this should naturally lead us first to self examination do I see anything of my own unbelief here do I see any of this unbelief in me do I doubt Christ in the same way in my so-called Christian life am I only running through the motions Am I not abiding in the power that is in Christ revealed through the word? Am I faking my spirituality so I could be accepted by others, so I could be seen as more righteous, so I can keep the tradition that I've been raised with? Is there anything of that in me? Oh, may God may find us out and change us from within. Or how about this? In the trials and difficulties in my life, where am I going for ultimate answers and help? Do I look to myself or do I look to other professionals or do I look to outside substances as my hope or do I run to the sufficiency of Jesus through his word? Oh Lord, look if there's any of this unbelief in me and root it out. Show me where I'm not trusting you and root it out of me. If I've been trusting something else, may God grant my repentance and strength to trust Him alone for the answers that truly help me. But how do you resist the unbelief of opponents? How do you battle against the unbelief of fake spirituality? Well, you must believe, and you need to live out that belief, quite simple. You must believe in the sufficiency of Christ working through the Word of God and live out that belief in your daily life. That's how you do it. Look at verse 14, chapter 3. This is what Tony read. You, however, continue and the things you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. You see that Timothy had become convinced of the truths of scripture. He believed the sufficiency of Christ working through the word because he'd experienced it firsthand in his salvation. He knew that the Word had the ability to bring forth faith that leads to salvation. He was convinced of the power of Christ through the Word. Dear Christian, what has changed you forever? Wasn't it the sufficient, glorious Christ revealed through His proclaimed Word? Isn't that what transformed you? Isn't that how you came to Christ? Isn't that how you came to faith? Isn't that how you sit in this church as a new creation? If that's true of you, if that's your experience, then it is impossible to deny Christ's power through the word. Be convinced of that. Be convinced of Christ working through the word that it has the power to lead to salvation through faith in Christ but sufficiency of Christ through his word is not just seen in conversion but in your everyday life look at verse 16 and 17 all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Now, we love these verses because they speak of the inspiration of Scripture. It teaches a great doctrinal truth. But that's absolutely true and glorious. But here, Paul is using it in practical application, in real life. God's Word is sufficient because the source of it is God Himself. God's Word is God-breathed. God used men to write the Bible, but in an ultimate sense, it originates in God Himself. The Bible that you have is the God-breathed Word, and that's why it is sufficient. It's worthy for you to trust in. And notice what that word is profitable. It's useful for. It's useful for teaching. It is sufficient to instruct us in all things pertaining to God and life. It's useful to reprove. It's sufficient to expose us when we go wrong with God and life. It corrects us. It's sufficient to show you back to the right way concerning God and life it's profitable for training it's sufficient to make you con- to be a continual guide for you to what is right in all things pertaining to god and life now do you see what that is do you see what the word does it teaches and then what happens when you go wrong reproof it exposes you it says stop you're doing it wrong <laughs> praise god And then it says, it's not that way, it's this way. And then after you've turned around, what's it do? It guides me into that right way continually. What is this? What does the word do? It's these wonderful spiritual U-turns of life. This is true change in life. God accomplishes true life change through the power of Christ in the Word. He turns life around. He turns lives around over and over. Is that not your experience? That the Word over and over brings about these beautiful U-turns. This change in life. Now do you believe that the Word does this? Praise God. Praise God. If you've been transformed by the power of Christ working through the Word in salvation, then you're going to continually trust the power of Christ working through the Word in the daily aspects of your life. Whether difficulty or trials or depression or loss or sickness or grief or persecution or suffering, in and through all there will be an abiding belief that Christ is sufficient through His Word to carry me through it all until I reach glory. That's how you fight this. You believe this and you live it out. You live it out. So beware the character of opposition and resist the unbelief of opponents. And last, avoid the deception of opponents. Avoid the deception of opponents. Look verses six, back at chapter three, verse six through nine. For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with their sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janice and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all. Just as Janison Jambri's folly was also. Here we see the deception of these opponents. Look at what they do. First, they take advantage of the immature. They take advantage of immature people. They enter into households and captivate weak women. That word, they sneak in and take captive. It means that their false teaching spiritually kidnaps these people. And they become carried away by it and their victims here they're weak women these are ones that are susceptible these are the ones that are immature they're susceptible because they've been weighed down by their past sins and they probably were never taught how to deal with it there are people that never taught how to deal with their past sins and they were led in false teaching And now after having been led by these false teachers, they're led by their own sinful desires and passions. And though now they're always learning new false things under these false teachers, they are now incapable of coming to the knowledge of the truth because they become so deceived and so misled by their captors. What a sad picture. They take advantage of the immature. And only that they oppose the truth. And it's interesting, Paul here brings in Janice and Jambres. These are the magicians that went against Moses in Exodus. These magicians he brings up, and he likens them to to this. Now if you remember that, that story in Exodus, those magicians... They copied Moses' miracles. They did exactly as Moses did. In Exodus 7, Moses turned his staff to a snake, and then the magicians came, and they did the same. Moses later turned water to blood, and then the magicians got together, and they did the same. Moses brought frogs up from the land of Egypt and the magicians got together and they were able to do the same. But that was it. After that, they couldn't copy it anymore. All of of those plagues, they couldn't repeat. And there's the deception. That's what Paul is talking about. They will do their best to look like the real thing. They'll deceive by making it look like Yes, we believe the same things, don't we? I believe in the same power as you, don't I? They will make you believe that they believe the same thing you do. But in their heart, they don't. And eventually, they will not be able to follow. It will be proven that they oppose the truth. It will be shown that they do not really believe what we are called to believe. And it says, just as their folly was revealed, so is all those who oppose the truth. God is gonna make the folly of these one obvious to all. I borrow this illustration from one of the students of mine in, in my hermeneutics class, but the cokey frog is a species of frog native to Puerto Rico. And uh, somewhere, some, somehow, they were brought to the Hawaiian Islands, probably, uh, you know, uh, on board of a plant that they brought. And what happened is that it greatly thrived and multiplied in Hawaii. And if you go there, at night, you can hear their beautiful song. It sounds like a, a quick high whistle, and that sound can reach up to 100 decibels. It's a really loud, and it's actually quite beautiful sound, soothing sound. I don't know about 100 decibels, though. Now, the bad thing is that these frogs, they're voracious eaters. And because they've so greatly multiplied, they've nearly destroyed the native e- ecosystem. And by the way, the koki frog is most, not much bigger than a dime. And this is what the small doubt of unbelief can do when it's infiltrated the church. You understand? All it takes is one lie to make you think Christ is not good enough. Christ can't really deal with my problems. He can't deal with my hurts. He can't deal with my depression. He can't change me. All it takes is that one little package, and it can devastate a church. It can devastate lives. And we must oppose this with all of our being. We must oppose this. Just that tiny doubt that Christ is not sufficient to help and deliver a person through his word, it can make the susceptible person captive and it can bring unimaginable damage to the body and it brings ultimate dishonor to our Savior. So we must avoid the deception of these opponents. We need to fully trust Christ's sufficiency through his word. And we need to continually proclaim how we are convinced of this to every generation. That Christ is able from generation to generation. back in verse 17 remember what it produces so that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work that is totally outfitted I I hear the words of John Carson in my head it's like a ship that's fully outfitted for war and ready to go that's what the word does it makes you adequate to execute every good work that God has for you to do you need to preach that convinced to every generation You need to pass that on, that passion to the next generation. Help them be convinced of the power of Christ through the word. Show them. Proclaim the ongoing confidence in that word for the complete equipping of every believer. Dear Christian, how do you teach and counsel yourself? How do you teach and counsel your children? How do you teach and counsel those that are in Bible study with you or people that you minister to? Do you feed them worldly wisdom? Do you pick up your advice from self-help books? Do you take advice from unbelieving professionals? Or do you counsel them with the Word of God with great confidence? That's what we're to do. Teach and equip with confidence from God's sufficient word. So, dear Christian, will you live in such a way that you guard and protect the word of God? Will you live in contrast to the character of this evil age? Will you live holy and Christ-like? Will you res- resist unbelief by trusting the complete sufficiency of Christ in His Word? Will you avoid the deception of opponents by passing on the complete confidence in Christ's sufficiency through the Word? This is what calls God calls of us. Paul called Timothy to this. God calls us to this. I started off by sharing about that young man that I was counseling and praise God he did not give up. He is still fighting for joy through the power of Christ through his word. But I want to tell you another story about this young woman. She was a rebellious high schooler. She was one that liked to have fun and she was always caused trouble in the youth ministry and you know she would come sporadically to youth ministry. I was, me and my wife were in youth ministry at the time and we saw her and we always, she was the ones that we always prayed for, you know? Now in high school, this young lady, she was going about her day like usual, but uh, something happened and she was angry. And so she was driving really fast down a very twisty road. And as she was speeding down, she was being careless. And somewhere along the way, she lost control and she rammed that car right into a tree. Now that young lady was in a coma for a very long time and in the youth ministry, we prayed for her. We prayed and prayed and we weren't sure if she was gonna wake up, but by God's grace, she did wake up and she was disabled. She had lost much function in in half of her body. And from that point, I started to lead the college ministry. And so she started to come to the college ministry And I I barely knew what to do because her mental functions were quite not there. It wasn't sure if she could understand. But she kept coming. Praise God. And slowly, God let her mental capacity come back. And she began to understand and started to learn the word, start to hear, and then started to respond. And now she's a wonderful lady in our church And I remember talking to her one day and I said, you know, I'm so thankful that the example you are. I'm so thankful of the way, uh, just you being here. And you know what she said? She said, you know, that, that accident changed my life. It changed my life. And then she said, but you know what? I'm actually thankful that it happened. Because God knew that was the only way to slow me down. That was the only way he would get my attention. And I'm thankful. And she loves Christ. And she believes Christ works through his word. And so she's at every Bible study. Every home group. Every ministry she can get her hands on. How do you account for that? How do you account for that? It's Christ's power. Working through the sufficiency of his word. That's what it is. How will you go against this age, this evil age that is telling you Christ is not enough, the word's not enough, you need other things, it's not sufficient. How will you fight? You believe like this young woman did. You believe in the sufficiency of Christ through his word. And you pass that on from generation to generation. Is this worth working for? Is Christ worth preaching? Is Christ worth passing on and his sufficiency worth passing on? Oh, may we be part of this. May we gladly take up this call. Let's pray. Father, thank you.